another week of adventures in devops i haven't been on the show for a bit and i almost forgot the show name but uh but we're here and we're back and with me today i have jonathan hall hi everybody and dave i realized i should have asked you how to say your last name but i'll take a guess at it uh mango mango can i say yeah. mango can we pretend yeah, that it's mango, mango? okay yeah, it's, it's french cool. that's why it has the t <laughs> Cool. Awesome. Right. So we are going to be talking today about the DORA report, which I think stands for the Accelerate State of DevOps report uh, with Dave. So do you want to take it away? Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be uh, interested in this topic. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Sure. I, I moved to San Francisco, Silicon Valley in the late 90s. There was this thing going on called uh, the dot-com boom. I didn't actually know that there was that thing going on, but <laughs> I, I moved here anyways. And uh, someone said, hey, you know about computers? And I said, oh, yeah, I guess. And they said, here's a job. Uh, and it's sort of been that way ever since, not in terms of people handing me uh, jobs, but working in, you know, companies in, in Silicon Valley and came up through different web things, stuff like that. Ultimately, was an architect in infrastructure engineering for Salesforce, designed a lot and implemented a lot of the way that Salesforce runs. Went on from there to run all the cloud SRE uh, functions for SolarWinds. So whenever they would acquire a SaaS company, I would get the SRE teams. And in the course of all those kinds of things, I, I kind of got into the DevOps movement very, very early on. So I was at one of the first DevOps days that they had in Mountain View at LinkedIn. have been sort of involved with all the different players, I guess you would call it. And I'm in the, you know, the DevOps handbook, but, you know, all, all that kind of fun stuff. And then a few years ago, I started uh, my own uh, consulting firm called Mango Tech. And I basically mostly work with uh, private equity portfolio companies, helping them to accelerate how they deliver software, you know, with speed and quality, um, because for the kinds of firms that I work with, generally, they want growth. They want to buy a company, invest a bunch of money, get a whole bunch of growth, and then have an exit, which is kind of a little bit different than venture capital, uh, which is what we're all used to in Silicon Valley. <laughs> and so when I come in and help them use their technology organization to grow, they generally are pretty happy about it. But we pull in a lot of things from DevOps. 
in order to make that happen. So DevOps meaning the international software delivery movement, DevOps, not DevOps engineer. And so the Dora stuff is relevant, right? Because Dora has their four KPIs or the Accelerate book has their four KPIs, which are deployment frequency, lead time for changes, change failure rate, and time to recover. Though it says mean time to recover, and that's a fun little diversion to talk about. Um, <laughs> but those those things uh, together really help us uh, think about like what is a high performing software delivery organization. Very cool. I always like talking to people who have uh, some some history and kind of the industry and have been around the block a couple times and have seen like the history and you know why these things come about the way that they are because everything always happens within a context it doesn't it doesn't just come out of the blue and uh interestingly enough i never knew that there was a devops handbook can we just maybe touch very quickly on like what is the devops handbook that's the yellow book that people have on their uh, bookshelves it's it's like gene kim john willis jez humble shouldn't have even tried to list the authors because i'm gonna leave someone out but i know nicole bosgren got uh, was in the second edition but this was something that a lot, a bunch of the sort of early DevOps leaders, especially the ones that are associated with the IT revolution press, hopefully people are familiar with IT revolution. For people like me, who, who like you said, been around the block, when I was a sort of a junior engineer, I would read all the O'Reilly books, whatever O'Reilly would put out, I would read, had a huge bookshelf of, of those things. And now I've sort of switched over to the IT revolution uh, bookshelf. So the Phoenix Project, Team Topologies, uh, all that, the Accelerate book, all those things are IT revolution. So I, I think they're really helping to advance the industry and like how we do things. And so the DevOps Handbook was one of their one of their projects for looking at the way organizations can adopt DevOps principles. The reason I'm in there is I gave a talk at Gene Kim's, the the lead author of that and the Phoenix Project and whatever his DevOps Enterprise Summit. I've actually spoken there more than once, but so he was writing about some of the DevOps lessons that we were explaining from Salesforce. And that's how I wound up in the book. Nice. Yeah, I have a copy of the the first edition. I'm going to have to upgrade soon. (laughs) (laughs) The second edition's out. I've heard it's, uh, well, I've heard from the authors. I heard them interviewing. I've heard from them that it's much better. Uh, I I hope I can trust them. (laughs) Right. I'm sure you can. know what they're talking about. (laughs) So, the door metrics. So you mentioned them briefly, but maybe we could talk about each one and and explain what they are and, and why it matters to to technology and why it matters to business. Yeah. So like we said, there's four of them, and you know my sort of philosophy on them is I I try not to I'd say over rotate on the actual numbers themselves. I think that what the Dora metrics tell us is sort of the things that we need to be concerned about if we want to have a healthy high-performing, you know, they'll, in the State of DevOps report, they'll call it elite, but elite software delivery organization. And so, like we said, there's there's deployment frequency and there's lead time for changes. Those are the first two. And I think the way to think about those is, is those things are about speed of delivery, right? How fast can we get things out the door? So, you know, I like to say that if, if I'm deploying four times a year and my com- competition is deploying every day, That means I have four times a year to run an experiment and figure out what does the market want? What do my customers care about? What, you know, what are the things that make my customers have a better experience? Things like that. So I I get four times, four shots a year to figure that out. 
my competition, they're deploying almost every day. They get 250 or, or something like that opportunities to figure that out. And it, it's just kind of asymmetric warfare. Like it's just not, it's not a fair fight. It's not even because it's, there's all kinds of reasons why we want to deploy more often with small batches and all these other kinds of fun things that we can get into. But that's where, you know, deployment frequency and lead time for changes. It's how often am I deploying? And then also from when I have an idea that I want to try out this experiment, how long does it take to get that experiment out into production? And so, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, those are kind of the speed metrics. And then the other two are uh, change failure rate and time to recover or mean time to recover is what they write. And those I look at as quality metrics. And so I, I think a lot of the messages in the DevOps movement is um, we're talking about speed and quality. And you'll notice that I said speed and quality, not speed or quality, because it's the lesson of the Accelerate book is that you're not trading off speed for quality. You actually have both and both are required. If you don't deploy frequently, you're going to have more failures because we know that when we batch up changes, right, if I have one thing that goes out, if that has a problem, I can easily roll it back. If I have 10,000 things that go out at once and something fails, I don't know what failed. It's something that failed within the interaction of those 10,000 things. That's a problem. And I want to have my mean time to recover to be a short amount of time because now I just have to figure out which of those 10,000 things or which of the combination of those 10,000 things or which three things out of those 10,000 things and their interactions is the thing that caused my problem. And like, that's not going to lead to a fast time to recover. So it turns out that's the big lesson of the Accelerate book is that the speed and the quality, we want both and we can have both and both of those things go hand in hand. And one one set of things facilitates the other. I think that's a really important point. Uh, you know, it, it's common. In, in fact, it's maybe even intuitive to think that the faster we go, the more mistakes we're going to make. And the slower we go, the fewer mistakes we're going to make. Because in, in many day-to-day activities, that's often true, right? If you drive too fast, you're more likely to have an accident. So we might just assume intuitively that the same is true with software delivery and DevOps. But what you're saying is that Accelerate is has demonstrated empirically that that's not actually true, at least in this particular domain, that we can be exceedingly fast with multiple deploys per day and deliver exceedingly high quality. And and, and the book actually explains why those actually help each other, right? Yeah. And, you know, to your point about driving fast, it's, you know, it's also about having a seatbelt on, you know, so like <laughs> right. we're not going to just deliver quickly and then all of a sudden we're going to have a, a low change failure rate and a, you know, and a low time to recover. Like we need to have all the, let's call it scaffolding. I don't know what you would want to call it in place in order to do that. Right. So like I need to have my unit test. I need to have my integration test. I need to have feature flagging. I need to practice dark launching to get things out there because it's not just about going fast. It's about going fast with quality and having those things in place, and there's lots of aspects to quality, having those things in place makes it safe to go fast. Mm-hmm. And so I'm getting fast feedback, which, you know, we talked about it right from the from the beginning there. We talked about I'm deploying one thing. I know pretty quickly whether that one thing broke something or whether that one thing is fine. I'm getting fast feedback. That's go back and read the Phoenix project, right? That's the second, the second way of DevOps, shorten and amplify feedback loops. Um, so I'm getting fast feedback there. 
I'm getting fast feedback when I check in my code. And within the amount of time that it takes for me to get a cup of coffee, I find out whether I broke something and because my unit tests are running. That cup of coffee time frame comes from uh, Continuous Delivery by Jez Humble and Dave Farley. So you can hear Jez Humble's name in there again. Uh, you know, obviously he, he's a he's a repeat character in a, in a lot of these uh, stories. But but yeah, you you need to uh, you need to get that feedback, and that's how we can deliver with speed and quality. And so these are the kinds of things I'm working with different organizations on, right? I'm I'm like, how are we going to accelerate this? How are we going to get this to be delivered with speed and quality? And you know, a lot of my clients are you know, on-prem with like a monolith and stuff like that. And it's a big, it's a big lift, like how to, how to move that, that needle. But there are ways we know, you know, how to do it. And, you know, monolith is a great example. We're going to break that apart. Why? Why do we break apart a monolith? Like, yeah, there's a lot of things about dependencies. Sure. But, you know, one of the reasons is we want to be able to deploy it with speed and like, deploying a monolith never is deployed with speed and so everyone's like oh microservices micros well why why micros why is microservices even matter it's because i can deploy my microservice or service or nanos whatever the hell you want to call it (laughs) i can deploy that as a small like you know independent small thing yes i need to have like contracts you know slas slos back to the things that are calling that, but that's part of the quality. And now I have the speed. And so these themes keep coming up over and over. And it's it's funny because I've, I've talked to people who are at like these big five consulting firms and they say that, you know, one of the things that these junior associates learn pretty quickly in the first year is monoliths are bad and microservices are good. And I was like, well, it's not really that simple. And he's like, yeah, I know that. But the associates are, they're just fresh out of college. That's, they learned this pattern recognition over the first year. And it's like, it's like, okay, but why? You know, but why, why? You know, and nobody has the answer to why, they just see it. But like- And if you don't know the answer to why in this case, knowing that pattern is almost worthless, right? Because then you end up building distributed monoliths or, or some other anti-pattern of microservices that actually makes your problem. If not, if it doesn't help, it might even make things worse. Yeah. And what's a monolith? I mean, it depends on know, how you define it, right? Is it but, a small monolith? Is it a big monolith? Is it a distributed monolith? Is it a, yeah. you know, there's all kinds, of, like, it's not, it's not so simple, which we get that because we've been doing this. But, but the point is, is that they don't, they can pattern recognize that or whatever, but they don't know the why. Like, why? why? What's so important? And, and you look at it and, you know, that doesn't mean you can't make it awful, right? Like people like to put out the, you know, the Uber, like act not like Uber, the actual like, you know, the, the transportation, whatever thing. And they have like that, the, the microservices thing or whatever. And it's, it's a bajillion lines that go all over the place that it is like almost impossible to reason about. Like, it's not like microservices is the answer to everything either. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like we like to say with, you know, with complex distributed systems, you don't have to make it complicated or complex because you get the complexity for free. <laughs> you don't even have to try. Yeah. Like you just get it for free. So make it as simple as you can, you know, and no simpler. But yeah, it doesn't, this whole like pattern recognition of monolith, my everything, what it doesn't, what we need to be able to do is ship software often and with high quality and just keep doing that over and over. Yeah. 
I always like to tell people it's the difference between having like uh, a million very small Legos making up like a, like a big Lego and just one, one big Lego. Same thing. They all have problems. Everything is broken. (laughs) Computers were a mistake. Yes, they were. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Like, these four metrics make sense to me, but there's some, some that aren't there that kind of might make sense. Like the, the most obvious one to me is, is maybe uptime. Shouldn't we care about uptime? You know, what if our uptime is only 80%, but we're delivering 50 times a day, you know? What's your thought? Why isn't uptime on there? Why, why aren't we looking for how many bugs make it into production or how many incidents we have, things like that? Yeah, I mean, some of that is captured in change failure rate. So we don't want to have failures. You know, my my sort of thing I like to preach to people is like, it's okay to have failures as long as nobody knows. So like, you know, if if I lose a web server and the auto scaling group replaces it and the load balancer doesn't send any requests to the thing that died, then yeah, I had a failure, but who cares? Like the customers never know that I had a failure. And so I think one of the reasons that they don't get into uptime so much is that uptime is sort of, there is no universal definition of uptime. I mean, there's also probably no universal definition of deployment frequency, but like an incident, let's call it, or an outage is a socio-technical agreement between the people that work at that company as to what defines an outage. And so like a a lot of my clients that they're like, oh, we want to have four or five nines of uptime. I'm like, great, change your definition of an outage and you will get that. Like it's super easy. Because it, it's something that you all agreed to anyways. It's not, there's no like universal definition of that. And if I lose a web server and the load balancer replaced or the auto scaling group replaces it and the load balancer is happy with it, was that an outage? I mean, I did have a failure, like it definitely mm-hmm. failed, but like, who knows like if that's an outage. And so it's, we don't want to kind of get for me. And I, and I think that hopefully the authors of Accelerate and, and stuff like that, we don't want to get too caught up in, in those kinds of numbers um, because they don't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. And and this is, it's a good intro to why why there's a big debate and let's call it the DevOps Illuminati or whatever. I don't know what you want to call <laughs> it, but like about this whole idea of MTTR versus TTR. Uh-huh. Because number one, like you're going to have incidents like straight up, like there's no, there's no, there's no way you're not going to have incidents. And in fact, if you weren't to have incidents, that would actually be probably be really awful because we, there's this whole idea of black swan events where like there's this huge long period of stability. And then when something finally fails, nobody knows what to do because we haven't had a failure in so long that like now it's this major catastrophe and, and, and whatever. But at the same time, like what is when we say this is and so there's a great paper by the Verica folks on this. So I definitely recommend go checking it out. And they talk about shallow metrics and they run Monte Carlo simulations and blah, blah, blah. But the point is, is like if we say the mean time to to failure to recover, then we talk about the mean. What does the mean tell us? And statistics, what does that tell us about the distribution? It tells us that Nothing. it's a normally distributed thing, right? It's a bell curve. How many people who are who are plotting their mean time to recover know whether or not their outages in in their systems are normally distributed? Do we have like some really short outages and some really long outages and everything else is in the middle? Because it, if you can't prove to me that you have normally distributed outages, then call, talking about the mean time to recover means nothing. 
It's it, you can't use statistics in ways that they were never intended. And so like when I give my talks, I like to say like a lot of times like you, you're talking about averaging these two outages together. To me, it sounds like the fire department saying like, well, we're going to talk about the average time to resolution for getting your cat out of a tree averaged with a five alarm chemical fire at an industrial plant. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point of that? Like, it doesn't make any sense, you know? And so, you know, if I have a database outage and I have a web server outage and the database I have to recover from, you know, snapshots from three months ago because there was some massive corruption or whatever, and I average that in with the web server being replaced by an auto-scaling group, what have I learned? Like, I, it's it's kind of nonsense. So that's kind of why there's a debate in the community over whether mean time to recover is, is, a, is a worthwhile thing. And you can tell which side I fall on there. But <laughs> I think the important part is that we talk about time to recover. And, uh-huh. and time to recover is something that's important. And it is something that we want to do. And that does affect our uptime, certainly like however we're being measured by our our leadership or whatever. And th- this is where we get into the SLA, SLI, SLO kind of discussions, which, I, you know, I think those things are valuable. But I think the important thing is that we we work on our ability to recover quickly. We work on our shared mental models between the people on our SRE team so that there's not just like, hey, we got to wake up Jonathan at 3 a.m. because he's the only person who understands how this subsystem works. Like, well, Jonathan's on an airplane to Europe right now. Well, that's a problem. You know, like we don't, that's that's going to lengthen your time to recover. And so I think that we want to work on how to recover quickly and what are the tools that we have and on the understandings that we have much more than we want to sort of, I guess I'll use the word again, over rotate on like, what, what does the uptime number mean? Or, or what is, you know, what's the TTR that we've measured? Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts, and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level, you know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. To, to play the devil's advocate for just a moment, yeah. the Accelerate book and the State of DevOps reports apparently used MTTR to come up with their analysis, to do their analysis, and found it to be statistically meaningful. I mean, as a predictor of, of business outcomes and so on and so forth. So what does that mean? Does that mean that they're taking a mean of something that's, are they are they taking the mean of cat rescues and five alarm chemical fires and it's and finding that that still means something? Or is it that this socio-economic, this socio-technical agreement people ta- are agreeing on of what an incident is, is a little bit more uniform than maybe we imagine? I think I it's more the that there's, Ahead, yeah. No, I was just saying, I want to know what the p-value is on the statistically uh, significant number. That's that's, yeah. that's all that I have to add to Half of the book, right? Well, I think this is kind of what we got back to in the beginning. Is like I think that these things are things that are indicative of a high-performing engineering organization. 
And I think that if you have a low time to recover, whatever, it means that you have the structures in place that allow you to do that, right? Nobody has a low time to recover just because it just happened that way. Like you actually have to be intentional about setting up these things. Do we have an incident commander? Do we have a policy that the executives don't join into the to the firefighting room or whatever people like to call it when there's an incident going on. Do do we have all these sort of things that we've agreed to as an organization that we're going to put in place so that we can recover quickly? Sort of like what you said, like these metrics, and try not to get super crazy about them because they're indicative of what an organization needs to do, which is why when we do our service delivery assessment that I developed based on the Accelerate book and whatever, We don't actually measure people's time to recover. We don't actually measure people's deployment frequency because I don't really care. What I care is that you have the things in place, the capabilities in place to be able to do all that stuff. And so Topapal from uh, from Capital One likes to say, like, at what point is uh, is my deployment frequency sufficient? Like if I deploy five times a week, is that good enough or is it 10 times or is it 100 times? Or is it not good enough until I hit 500 times a week? Because it, it doesn't matter. Like the number doesn't matter. The, the, the thing that matters is whether we're meeting the objectives that the business is trying to achieve. Uh-huh. And like, if I can meet that objective, like my deployment frequency, let's just say is 10 times a week and I'm meeting all my business objectives, then what do you do when your manager comes in and is like, we're meeting all of our business objectives, we're deploying 10 times a week, let's put some real effort into getting that up to 200 times a week. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not going to waste my time on that. That's dumb. Like, not, it's not 200 isn't materially better than than 10 if it doesn't change anything. Like, if, And so, like, I think that's the thing with this, uh, with the TTR and the MTTR is like, what's a good number? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It matters like what, what, whether that satisfies what the business needs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I know in there they're talking about like whether you can re- recover in under a day versus oh, it takes a month or, or whatever. And I think that's fine. I think we can all agree on that. I think we can all agree that deploying four times a year is not as good as deploying once a week. But at some point you start getting into like this discussion of like whether three nines is as good as four nines, which is as good as five nine. Like it's it's not a, something that we can answer universally. It depends on the business, it depends on the commitments we've made. I worked for a company once. Um, so two things. Like one is with all my SREs, I always told them there's only two things you ever really have to worry about. Number one, keep the site up and running as much as possible. Number two, keep the developers moving as fast as possible. And that's it. Like every decision you make should be grounded in those two things. I worked for a company once where those things were reversed. Number one was keep the developers moving as fast as possible. And number two was keep the site up because they were, you know, prioritizing innovation over uptime because that's what they felt was best for the business. So you don't want to take that company and average that in with the companies who are like, I want five nines because they have different business objectives. And I'm not saying which business objective is right or wrong isn't right. for you and I and Jillian to sit and, and debate from the far. But that's why I think it like the fact that they were able to prove that those things are statistically correlated to high performing organizations 
it's not about whether they had four nines or five nines or any of the other kind of stuff. It was about do they have the capabilities in place to enable them to be able to meet those business objectives and do it in a in a way that we are in a time frame, let's say that we all would sort of agree is, you know, it's generally acceptable. Right. So what, how do you determine uh, when you're working with a new uh, company, a new client, what kind of questions do you ask to, and, and I think you have a framework that you use, what, but what do you, what do you do? How do you assess where they are in these areas and where they need to improve? Yeah, we, we always joke with the engineers. We're like, we only have three questions. So this will be like, you know, two or three minutes and we'll be done. The first is like, what are all the things that happen from when code is checked in until it's in production? The second is basically the same sort of question, but for infrastructure. So I want to launch a new SQS queue or I want to deploy a new Google, a new Google Cloud function or whatever. And then the third is what are all the things that happen from when an incident is declared until all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted. And we say that that thing is is completely 100% resolved. And it turns out this takes more than two or three minutes to, to answer those three questions because really delving into the SDLC and we're del- and the infrastructure development lifecycle and you know, all the things that feed into TTR and, and stuff like that. So um, what we're looking for, and we have a list of like 50 plus criteria, we're looking for these capabilities. So it can be simple stuff like, hey, so what do you do for production monitoring? You know, it's like Bob, Bob, checks, the the, Bob checks the console every morning. <laughs> right. You know, and like, yeah, I mean, but you, but because you're involved in this all the time, like what is, what is having production monitoring effect, right? Well, it's definitely going to affect my time to recover. It's definitely going to affect my change failure rate, probably my time to recover way more than my change failure rate, because if I make a change that fails, I need to know that it failed, but that's where I'm going to get that from my monitoring and stuff like that. And we all know the famous Mickey Dickerson uh, story about when he went to healthcare.gov and said, what's your production monitoring? And they pointed at the television screen in the next room and he said, what's that? And they're like, it's tuned to CNN. Whenever we have a major outage, CNN reports about how we're down and that's how we know that we're down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is excellent. He was like, like wow, that. we should probably change this. <laughs> Let's uh, go hire the guys at CNN to get our, uh, you know, like our downtime and all that kind of thing. They probably have better metrics on it than we do. <laughs> That's what I would say. Right. I have heard of companies using AI and Twitter to detect outages. Yeah. And, I, you know, with the clients that I work with, I, I argue that perhaps we could do better. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Imagine a world where you don't rely on Twitter or CNN. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, we're looking for capabilities and, and we're looking for capabilities because we understand how those capabilities feed into the four KPIs. And so we will ask questions not only about, you know, what do you do for production monitoring? But like on top of that, what do you what do you uh, what do you do when you want to create a new custom metric or you want to send a new log line or, or whatever? Because. It turns out installing the agent for whatever, whatever monitoring system, I'm specifically trying not to plug any one vendor, but installing the agent from some vendor is the easy part. Like that's, yeah, okay. So now we get a bunch of default stuff for free. But like, if I want to know like what's the average latency on some queue, 
I don't just get that for free just by installing a vendor's thing. I actually have to do something to try to to get that number. And that 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 ability is highly correlated to being able to recover the things quickly, at least in my opinion, because you know, a lot of times, and you've probably been in these firefighting situations, you know, when something breaks and we're trying to figure out what broke, how do we fix it, what's wrong. A lot of times I'm like, I have a hypothesis that it's the latency on this queue. Well, let's figure that, let's try that. So we write some code, we ship it, and it, you know, and then the latency on the queue pops up on our dashboard. And we're like, oh my God, the cache is returning things in six seconds. That's a problem, you know, like I'm just making up stuff, but uh, yeah. but like that ability to have a question and get that question answered, which you could also call lead time for changes. That is a, a, a uh, we believe, or I believe is indicative of a high performing organization, not whether you installed some agent from a vendor, like that's mm-hmm. great, but that's in crawl, walk, run, that's crawl. Like <laughs> we wanna, you know, the, the high performing organization, the elites organizations that are running, They have well-established, well-documented, well-understood methods for doing that, for getting that metric, number one. And and number two, they make it easy. So they have like internal libraries and stuff like that. Say, oh, if you want to instrument the latency on a queue, just use this method out of this library. And there it is. You don't have to invent how to do it. You don't have to go read the documentation on how to create a custom metric and collect D or whatever. Like we have easy ways of, of making that stuff available and that's the elite performers. Once you've asked these three questions and gotten the long detailed answers, do you do you tabulate some sort of score or is it just sort of a feeling that, okay, here's where we need to improve? Yeah, we score them on, and I say we as I have a partner that I do it with, which okay. I don't usually work with a partner in my consulting business, but for the assessment, yeah, we, we he's a SRE level architect or architect level SRE, I think is the right way of saying that. <laughs> and and we will kind of debate for a while what that score is. But that means that by the time we're going to a client and saying, this is what we believe and this is where you could improve, we have done an in-depth analysis of every one of the things that we're talking about and just and had a long discussion so that we really, you know, we're, we're sort of really prepared. And we've been, we've gone to the reviews with clients and they've put us through the ringer. Like they've been like, what do you mean by this? And what about this and whatever? And, you know. Why didn't you, you give us 100? We're <laughs> yeah, why didn't 100 out of 100? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was we've gonna... had really great scores and we've had really mm, not so good scores. But on the whole, I think people do pretty well. And to okay. me, one of the things that I've discovered that is just fascinating is uh, the people who are sort of on the like leading edge of like the serverless kind of things, like a lot of Lambda, a lot of whatever, they tend to do great because you're paying Amazon and you're paying Google for all of these best practices. Mm-hmm. Like they're do- like they're distributing stuff across multiple availability zones for you. They're they're doing like all these, you know, all this stuff that normally you would have had to do yourself. But, you know, that's why they're charging you all that money, obviously, is because they're doing all that stuff for you. But we can score a lot of these folks really highly because they just they're paying for that. All those best practices that Amazon and Google and whatever, they're all building into their products because they know how to deliver software. They know like what it takes and 
obviously that that kind of stuff will only take you so far you're not processing a million metrics a second through lambda well not if you want to stay in business anyways <laughs> but it's it's really fascinating to watch some of these like more like smaller companies that we usually only get exposed to like they're being added on to an existing private equity portfolio company but they have a lot of great practices because the turns out the big cloud vendors really know what they're doing and that's why you're paying them all that money that's really interesting. And I, that kind of brings me into sort of the next question that I had for you, which is uh, like, what kind of patterns are you noticing among these companies, especially, I don't know, do you keep working with them or do you, you have the initial assessment and their score and then like you skip off into the sunset? Is this you, you know, maybe you keep working with them and you see certain patterns emerging over time? I'm really interested in that. Yeah, I mean, the answer to everything in technology is it depends, right? That's my favorite. Yeah, some companies we continue to work with, some companies we don't. It's I we tend not to work more, do ex- more work with the companies that are doing really well. So if they're scoring like in the 90s on everything, then, you know, it, <laughs> I'm happy to come in and take your money. Sure. But like, I mean, actually, I'm not happy to because I like working on hard problems, not easy problems. But but yeah, I mean, those those people tend to not want kind of as much help. But it's it's very across the board. There there, I, there are certain patterns, certainly. Like I, I think I talked about earlier, like there's people who are moving from on-prem into cloud, and there's there's whole there's whole things that need to be taught there that are not going to just come out of an assessment. But then you know there's companies that are they're just kind of doing this as not kind of they are doing this as due diligence because they want to acquire a smaller add-on company and they they want to understand like what are going to be the challenges so we did one company which was kind of fascinating where they were doing a lot of like the lambda and, and the whatever and there were people were asking them about like disaster recovery and we were like you know we looked at you know how they did all their stuff we understood the architecture all the things and they're like this one consultant guy was like, oh, well, you should replicate everything into uh, another Amazon region and build an, exo- an entire you know, thing. And so if you ever have a failure, you can just point at that and like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you're going to spend so much money on that. Like, and it's going to sit idle doing nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Just like until there's some kind of a failure. I was like, and you don't even know what kind of a failure there's going to be. So like, you're going to spend all this money for something that may or may not ever be useful. And this was a company that did uh, sort of ad technology. So they had a like a 24 hour sort of SLA with their customers to be able to process the data and give it back to them in a report. There's no real time requirement at all other than you need to get the data. Like when the data comes in, you need to capture it. So we were like, well, you know, stand up a Kinesis queue and stand up some of your Lambda stuff and, you know, whatever. But Amazon doesn't charge you for any of those things unless you're using it. So when the data, if you have a problem, you can switch over to that. It goes into Kinesis and then it'll stay there and you'll have captured all the data. And then you'll have 24 hours to figure out what to do about it. Right. Is the is Amazon going to be back in less than 24 hours? If they are, then great. You can drain the queue, process it with your workers and put it back into the database. Or you, if it's not, you can worry about standing up stuff or what. 
I was like, but like spending a ridiculous amount of money for no purpose, like it doesn't make any sense. But like, yeah. I've been doing this for 20 something years in Silicon Valley, like uh, very practical <laughs> about these kinds of things. And so, but it's fascinating because you actually can leverage, like we just talked about all these sort of best practices that AWS builds into the way that they do things and, and Google and Microsoft or whatever, you can leverage those things to your advantage, which this is the best thing I love about how everybody like says, I don't understand, Dave, we're moving to the cloud. How come we're not saving any money? And I'm like, you don't move to the cloud to save money. That's Am- Amazon doesn't offer you cheaper anything. What they offer you is if you want to save money, that's on you. You have to engineer the ability to save money. You have to think about your problem. You have to think about what are the things that you can do to take advantage of these things. And you can save a ton of money at Amazon and you can do it much faster than you could have ever done in the data center because you can move so much more quickly. But the onus is on you. The onus isn't on Amazon to to save you money. Like they're like, hey, you're an engineer, figure it out, <laughs> which is, uh, is a little hard for people to wrap their head around. But I, I love that example because we were able to Think about, you know, what are the tools that we had at our disposal and how do we come up with a good solution that balances costs versus like what are the things that are available? And, you know, this is not to discount all the things that we were just talking about with the Dora metrics. Like this is a fast TTR, but it's a fast TTR for the things that are most important. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that's the thing is like the, the time to recover that was important in that scenario wasn't that we had a web interface up with all the latest data from like the past three minutes, because that's not the SLA they even had with their customers. So like, what do we care about the most? We care about, you know, this is the number one cardinal rule in SaaS. Don't lose customer data. (laughs) That's it. That's the number one rule about do not lose customer data. And so that's what we emphasized was like, don't lose customer data. And that's what the TTR was optimized for. Do with, with these clients, do you track door metrics? And, and if so, why? I mean, if, if you use your own framework, are the door metrics like a progress indicator that this thing's going up or down or, or you not even bother with that? I don't even bother with that because if you're deploying four times a year, we know when you're deploying once a month that, <laughs> when, that it got better. Like I don't... Yeah. I don't need to plug into anyone's GitHub repository with anybody's tools in order to figure that out. Like we know I, the the companies that I tend to work with aren't like the, uh, the Netflixes of the world. Like they're the ones who are, they need help to get from where they are to where they want to go. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who are happy to help someone move from five deploys a day to eight deploys a day. To me, that's not an interesting problem. So mm-hmm. I, those aren't the kinds of clients I tend to take on. I, I like to work with people who are having really difficult problems that they're like, I don't know how to get out of this. And like, yeah. I'm like, great, I don't know how to get out of it either. But <laughs> I will definitely sit and work with you and figure, we'll figure it out together because you know we've done a bunch of this stuff before. But even I, I don't have the answers for anybody. Like I just, I, I kind of keep going back to these things. They're like, how do we deliver with speed and with quality? And we're not sacrificing one or the other. Like, how do we do both? And then we talk about it and we figure things out. And 
we try things, right? We talked about experiments right in the very beginning. Like that's how we figure things out. This is, you know, that's what agile is, right? Agile is we run a lot of experiments and what works we keep and what we, what doesn't work, we throw away and we keep trying to get better all the time. This is like all the stuff, you know, the DevOps movement, why do we always, what do we always come back to? Toyota, 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 Toyota. Like what, is, you know, uh, Steven Spears says like, uh, and I'm just parroting John Willis, but Toyota was a community of scientists. They're running experiments all the time, just trying to get better all the time. And so that's what we do. And uh, turns out as long as you're, you're trying to get better all the time, you get better. Even if you're not that good at it, I think you get better. Yeah. But yeah, that's, you know, when you read like Jez Humble, you know, one of the people from from the Accelerate book, when you read him talk about, uh, you know, what what's the purpose and, you know, why do you do it? He talks about like the Dora things. It's, it's all about running experiments because we're just trying to get better all the time. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Very cool. I like this uh, data driven, data driven approach to doing well, it, anything, I, absolutely anything. Doesn't matter. There should be data. I also like the idea of of not worrying about these metrics, at least at your stage, which is kind of. I've never been in a place where we actually measured those things either. I've always been aware of those things, and I've taken an approach similar to yours. Of like, I mean, you can just sort of look and see. Oh, we're deploying once every three weeks. How can we improve that? Oh, now we're down to three to 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 on demand, whatever that is. You know, maybe it's once a day or once a week, depending on the on the the team. But you know, on demand is a heck of a lot better than we can't do it because we're waiting on these sixteen things to happen. And when you're waiting for a three-week deployment schedule or whatever, measuring that is worthless, right? There's nothing There's nothing to measure anyway, other than what does your calendar say? <laughs> yeah, I think by the time you're measuring it, like in any real, like granular way, you're probably already there. Yeah, right. Like that's the, it's that thing, like what is a hundred deploys a day really better than 25 deploys a day? No, probably uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's, in some contexts, it might be right, but in in general, that you know that you. Know, I, I worked at Booking.com for a while, where they would worry, they would do, do A/B tests to see if they could get you know point zero one percent better conversion rates. And you know, I would love to have that problem, <laughs> where I cared about a point zero one percent conversion rate, because that means I'm making billions of dollars already. And <laughs> yeah, and, well, until I mean, then, Amazon and Google have published those studies, right? Yeah, I mean, until then, you know, most of the, most of the sort of places I work with, at least, is small, fairly small companies, and you know, a little bit smaller probably than the ones you work with usually. The kinds of A/B tests, we don't have the volume to even measure that type of a, of a change, but we can measure a 5% conversion change, and that's meaningful for us. Right. Worry about the problems at your scale, and let the let those big-scale problems, let them worry about themselves 10 years in the future when they actually matter to you. <laughs> yeah, that's why the cargo culting stuff is so bad, where everyone's yeah. like, oh, the Spotify model. And you're like, well, but what, like the spot, Spotify doesn't even use the Spotify right. model, or what everybody calls the Spotify model. Like, Spotify was trying to solve a problem that they had at the time. And unless you are exactly what they were at that time with all their same problems, that may or may not actually help you at all. And it's even worse than that. What are they trying to do? Why? The so-called Spotify model was a snapshot of an experiment they were trying at the moment. Right. You know, it wasn't even something they had necessarily proven worked. It was like, we're going to try this now and see what happens. And then they just never continue blogging about the iterations they did so right that's why i always say like when i go into clients i don't have the answers yeah and they're like no you're the consultant you're in the books like just tell us what to do i'm like i can't because you have your unique business things that you're trying to accomplish the technology organization is one part of trying to accomplish that 
There are other parts of the organization that are involved in those things. And we need to think about all of those things, not just the technology organization, but like we need to figure out how do we solve your specific challenges? And like, there's no, there's no answer to that other than what works. Right. Yep. <laughs> and the Spotify model is probably not it. <laughs> awesome. Dave, if people are interested in connecting with you, or maybe they need someone to come score their delivery maturity, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, the, the best place is just through uh, Mango Tech. So M-A-N-G-O-T-E-Q-U-E. It's supposed to be a, a play on, uh, on my name being French. You can thank the incomparable Corey Quinn for coming up with that name. I, I thought it was brilliant. So I was like, yes, let's do that. But mangotech.com uh, has links to the blog. It has links to the LinkedIn email all Twitter, all that other fun stuff. So uh, a good one-stop shop. Great. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Jillian, do you have a pick? I do. I do. So I think in March, right, it was Women's International Month. And this bot on Twitter called the Gender Pay Gap Bot kept coming up on my feed. And it just it just offered me like this endless source of entertainment. And it hasn't stopped for months. So if you haven't checked it out, go go check out some of the threads. They are they are pretty funny. I'm still, you know, every once in a while, it still pops up for me. And I sit there and cackle like the evil swamp witch that I'm slowly becoming. So that's it. That's the pick. What about you guys? Do you have anything? I have a random pick. And, and this is super weird. It's not related to anything at all. But I hate toothpaste. I don't like the texture. I don't like the flavor. I don't know. I just, I just hate toothpaste. So I have switched to tooth powder. And uh, actually, tooth powder predates toothpaste by a long time, decades, centuries, maybe. I don't know. But it comes in a little round. It looks like a chewing tobacco style canister. It's just a little powder. You need to put it in your toothbrush. And it has some of the same flavor as toothpaste, but it doesn't have that weird gooey texture that I hate so much. So I use tooth powder. I'm not, I'm not going to pick any particular brand or, or anything because there's a bunch of them out there and you have to try one and pick one you like. But if you don't like toothpaste, I, I encourage you uh, to try tooth powder. Maybe you'll like it better like I do. And then your dentist won't yell at you for not brushing your teeth at all. <laughs> Wasn't like baking soda the original kind of tooth powder or toothpaste like um, substance? Yeah, that was, yeah, I think uh, it was. I, you know, I tried that for a while. I, I couldn't stand the, the flavor of that. That's that's weird. No, no. Um, no, I don't, I don't like it either. But yeah, in a pinch, I guess that'll work. Uh, I'll pile on to the, the pay gap thing by promoting a blog by a woman. So Camille Fournier wrote a blog last year that was something like, 27 things that a senior engineer needs to be able to do besides writing code. And I, I, I don't remember the exact title of it, but it was it was something something to that effect and it shouldn't be that hard to find. But it was all kinds of things like explain something to a junior engineer so that they understand like this concept or get the rest of the team to understand like why this thing is so important or promote uh, somebody else's work that isn't taking credit enough for their own things. Um, but there's this, it was, it was really awesome because it was, you know, we like to focus on like data, 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 code, 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 we're engineers, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out being a really good engineer, being a successful engineer, I was an architect at Salesforce, like, yeah, I wrote code, but like the things that made me effective was my ability to work with other people and being able to get consensus and, and all these other things that are 
people skills and human skills. And so uh, I love that blog post uh, of hers because it it's dead to rights. Like there's so much that goes on involved and gets involved in being a good engineer and good engineering. And I love that she highlighted that it was like way beyond arguing over, you know, JavaScript frameworks and stuff like that. Nice. That's great. Yeah, I'll definitely. Awesome. I haven't read the blog post, but I'll plus one the idea. I found over time my technical skills matter less and less, which is good because these kids are way smarter than me. And, you know, like <laughs> peopling skills and being able to kind of talk to people and understand their problems has mattered more. Definitely agree with that. All right. Well, I think we're all done. So uh, thanks, guys. And talk to you next week. Cheers. Bye bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.